Network. Hi, this is Stephen Turek from the Freebooters Network. Today we bring you another episode of Ego, the 80s geek out. We hope you enjoy the show. And welcome to Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast. This is episode 12. My name is Ian Clark, and I am joined, as always, by the scat man to my crothers, Mr. A. Bradford Anderson. Brad, how are you this morning? Happy Sunday, Ian. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Very well. I appreciate it. Uh, for those that, uh, well, you, you should know because it says right in the title, you know, description of of what this episode is. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the movie The Shining from 1980, uh, the 40th anniversary of this film. I think it came out in May of that year, but um, but still, we're trying to squeeze it in here in 2020, and with the spooky month of October and Halloween coming up, Halloween, which is Brad's birthday. I, it is my birthday. Yeah. Another revolution around the sun is right around the corner. This is a a big deal. Interestingly enough, thank God I'm not 50 yet, but uh, getting ever ever closer to that each year and year. I went digging through a bunch of uh, photo boxes yesterday, stuff that I took with me when I uh, swapped coasts, and it was amazing going down memory lane. There's a lot of history that I had kind of not necessarily forgotten about, but was definitely you know contained inside those inside those. Uh, photo albums, and I was able to find a few things to back up some of my claims of one of which I think you you may have noted was the uh, the class action valley, the uh, the action valley uh, amusement park from the late 70s, early 80s in, oh. in Valley, New Jersey. And you know, I had re- remembered at some point we had had a map guide and a few other you know, souvenir trinket items from that adventure, one of the adventures as a kid. And sure enough, I found one of the uh, the maps. It was very crudely, very crude artwork, but it got the point across. And one of the big interesting portions of that was noticing that uh, Playboy sponsored the adult <laughs> fun house, which I was kind of shocked about. I did not remember that at all. And I'm not even sure in the documentary they fully alluded to that. They alluded to there is a place where adults can go drinking while the kids are having fun. (laughs) But they'd never mentioned that it was sponsored by Playboy. And the actual Playboy logo and the actual, like, 70s and 80s um, uh, type font that it was actually printed on the magazines is actually on the little map that they give you when you enter the the park. So that was – that was fun going down memory lane and, and kind of being shocked. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I, yeah, the, I think that documentary is, uh, is it just called Action Park. I think it's on Netflix right now. I know um, Class it's been Action trending. Park. Definitely okay. watch it. It's worth your while. And it brought back some good memories and some interesting memories and some stuff that you had no idea about. But the one thing I do remember, and they kind of highlight this in the documentary, is like all the – they're not carnies. They're like all the – they're teenage kids who basically are at every – um, events stand from the water slides to the alpines to the bumper cars to the race cars it, it's all like teenagers running the show there and i think nowadays you know just the legality of that as well um <laughs> because they pretty much it was no holds barred anyone can do almost anything and that really gets really well highlighted in the documentary so <laughs> yeah it's on it's definitely on my watch list because i've heard right. good things about it. and it's funny because not only you <laughs> 
but I've had a bunch of friends on Facebook, um, you know, link to that documentary and say like, oh my God, I went here. <laughs> yeah, right. And it was shocking because it's one of those things, you know, when you're a kid growing up, you have no idea of all the things going on behind the scenes and that he was a, the, the guy who owned the, the place and turned it into the park was a complete Wall Street fraudster and got into involved with various pyramid schemes and all these things. So as a kid, when you're going down on one of the thick, wet slides, you're not thinking about like, oh, yeah, you know, there's something terrible and nefarious going on behind the scenes. But uh, right. definitely recommend it to anyone who wants to check that out um, from the era because it's a, it was a prime staple in the 80s for us when I used to visit my cousins in Long Island. So Nice. All right. How are things going otherwise? Good. Life is good. Uh, last night there was a mega party outside my <laughs> my complex, and evidenced is uh, when I walked out this morning the amount of beer bottles, wine bottles, uh, hard seltzers. So I I I, I didn't participate last night because there was a I wanted to get up early for this podcast, but um, it looked like it was a corker because the amount of uh, stuff that's out there it's like a minefield of uh, alcoholic wasteland. So. <laughs> oh, all right, so you can expect a COVID outbreak, uh, uh, <laughs> I would say. That's something that I, I washed my hands even when I walked in my own door this morning, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, good that things are going well. Things are things are good here on the East Coast. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's starting to get cool. Uh, I love October. It's been we, – we've had a very nice October, actually. It hasn't been – uh, hasn't been real cold. It, it's getting chilly. My wife got up early this morning to uh, to go do a day hike today, and oh, I think when she left, it was about 25 degrees. So. Oh my God! Yeah, that that's quite a drop off. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and you're starting to get into that thing too, where just on a daily basis, it's crazy. Like last Saturday for my son's football game, it was a beautiful day. It was Saturday it was like 75 degrees. It was gorgeous, and then Sunday was like in the 50s and just kind of miserable. So. You get that real big swing, but that is a no. huge swing, and I've actually noticed it out here too. And the days are super hot. Uh, we're we're edging still in the, in the low 80s, and then at night it drops off. It's like fleece weather. You can see uh, the people can't see this, but I'm in a fleece and a beanie right now because there's still a little bit of moisture and coolness in the air from last night. So I'm uh, I'm definitely taking the warm route this morning. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's get started with uh, with digging into the shining. Uh, there's so, so there's a couple things too to kind of maybe talk about before we get started. One of them is that uh, Stephen King this is obviously based on the Stephen King novel. Yeah. Uh, Stephen King famously hates this movie, and I understand as the creator, I understand his gripes being. So I think some of the main things are that he, that Kubrick doesn't explore the theme, the central theme that King puts forth in the book, and that is the breakdown of family. And um, I, I think I, I definitely see that. I also see he's King has also said that he disagreed with the choice of Jack Nicholson as the lead. I was surprised, yeah, about that. Learning about that recently as well. Yeah, but I think his reasoning is sound because I think I think King's main point in that is that yes. Jack Torrance has a, a background that's problematic with alcoholism and, and you know, some – whether it's a one-time thing or multiple things, but some form of, form of abuse right. with, with his son, but is otherwise, you know, not, not necessarily someone that outwardly you would see and, and think was a bad person, whereas casting Nicholson – who at this point was already known for some, for some of his performances and, um, you know, his uh, – 
uh, kind of his demeanor and his approach yeah, to acting. Yeah, on-screen presence, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Casting him immediately <laughs> sets people on edge. And and yeah. so he starts out, and I think that's evident in the movie. I don't think oh, he, I don't think Jack is likable at any point in this movie. There is not one moment. I absolutely agree with you. It's from even from the the moment when you see him driving to the Alec uh, Hotel, and the music is playing eerie, and you see him enter in the lobby for you know to announce his intent for an interview. You just get a sense of uneasiness about him, and. And that even today, largely when we see him on film and throughout his most of his career, you just know there's going to be a dark cloud of badassery or evilness hanging around him. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I want to touch on real quick is that um, – and I, I'm a huge Stephen King fan. I love King. There was a time in my life where I had read everything, and I kind of fell behind. There's probably – over the last 20 years, uh, I've probably read – maybe 40% of his output because he still continues to crank things yeah. out. So I'll pick things up from here and there, but, um, but I'm a huge King fan and I certainly respect his, um, uh, his thoughts on, on this movie adaptation. But at the same time, this is one of my favorite horror films. I, I think it's absolute perfection. Um, and, and I'm also one that I can see it. The book and the movie are separate and I can keep them separate. And I do that with other things. Blade Runner and sure. Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Completely yeah. different. Same right. rough theme in there, but but I enjoy right. them both. So um, so this is a movie I've seen a ton of times, and I usually do watch it around Halloween again. So is this – same for you? Is this a movie you've seen quite a few times? Yeah. I mean I've seen – of all the Stephen King adaptations, aside from you know the Stand By Me film, which is one of my all-time favorites, this film on the horror scale, because of how legitimately it is – portrayed on screen by the actors. I mean, you, you, even though I agree with his sentiments that he wasn't fully happy with, you know, Nicholson being cast, he kind of is the right person to kind of see going uh, in a downward spiral very quickly. I mean, the, you know, anytime, I think in most horror movies where people are spiritually possessed or have declines or affected by demons, they're usually f major flaws in their living character. Like you said, he, there's a problem without a recently stopped problem with alcoholism, as was noted in the film. And that kicks in uh, again later. Um, but, you know, people who are typically easily taken over by spirits and demons are weak on many levels and they have addictions. And I think, you know, and ju and just him as an actor himself, the way he, you know, his facial expressions and, you know, like you said, his demeanor. You automatically walk in knowing, you know, that he's going to be the one of the primary antagonists in the film, and I think that comes across very clearly. And and I looked, you know, yesterday at some of the other actors that were considered: Harrison Ford, Robin Williams, De Niro. And in all honesty, I, I think, you know, of all those four, it would have been strange. I was trying to mentally picture each of them in the role. Maybe Robin Williams, you know, because he can go that that manic side that would have been early in his career and his community career I, but i but think I, it would have been tough for people to go in because yeah. 1980 you're talking more you know more and mindy yeah era, and not right. him getting into his dramatic yes that would come later um Absolutely. i think i think right off the bat people wouldn't be able to take it seriously if you can right. Harrison right. Ford's an interesting choice because he would have been coming in off of um, – so Empire wouldn't have been out yet. He would right. have been coming in off of um, uh, off of Star Wars. Um, yeah. I think he maybe did something in between Hanover Street or something like that. But um, but he, he might have been able to capture more of the everyman 
thing that King wanted, but right. Um, but you're right. I can't I can't picture anybody other than Nicholson to show it? like the uh, the quick downward spiral. But you know, I I could see Harrison Ford in more of the familiar role of the husband, but like you said, the decline in the film happens very quickly. It's you know, yeah, it, it, to us the viewer, it happens. Really, they, they do post dates and times and, and time frames on the film in the film, so you can see the duration of how things are deteriorating, but. You know, he would have been more of the fit the family man picture character versus uh, Jack Nicholson. And we'll talk about him from the get go of just how unsettling and how uncomfortable uh, the viewer is kind of seeing him on screen and, you know, as things progress in the film. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, you already mentioned it. Uh, the film opens with just this heavy ominous music as you see this beautiful mountain vista as um as jack is driving for his interview um well, I, i've already mentioned blade runner once i'll mention it a couple other times because there are connections here those uh sweeping shots of the of the road and the, the mountainside and everything were used later in the quote-unquote happy ending that uh the studio wanted ridley scott to tack on to blade runner where Deckard and Rachel are driving away, they actually re reuse some of these helicopter shots, which is kind of interesting. Um, so, uh, yeah, just a beautiful opening scene. This this great uh, picturesque setting, but that just ominous driving music really sets the tone early. Compl and and in addition, within that music, I noticed there's almost these until they you're until you're at the Overlook Hotel. It's very much almost disembodied voices within the, those kind of eerie rhythms that are playing as, and usually when you, when people ascend up mountains in films, there's glorious music backing them, orchestral segments. This was anything but orchestral. It was uncomfortable at best. Sparse and too. Kind of, it definitely was setting the tone very early. Like most of the films that we talk about, the soundtracks definitely complement what's going to, what's going to uh, occur in the film. Yeah. So uh, we touched on this too, but you you get that sense of Nicholson of Jack, Jack Torrance as a character. There's something a little off about him. You you sense it immediately in the interview. Yeah. Well, and yeah, go ahead. No, when he was and yeah, it's just the the way the one part that kind of set me off in a this is an odd interview uh, when he's sitting there and and the the interviewee um, asks him do you know the history about the hotel and, and what happened here? And he's like, no. And then he was like, no, I figured the people um, or in Denver would have let you be the one to tell me what that stuff is. So, so he walks into the situation, not really fully knowing what he's walking into, but you know, he's, it's just an uncomfortable, weird scene when he's sitting in there and, and then the story kind of gets broken of what actually occurred uh, in the hotel. Yeah. The hotel manager, Ullman, tells the story of the Grady, the, the previous – or not previous necessarily, but a previous caretaker yeah. who who got uh, stir-crazy in the hotel over the winter and killed his wife and daughters. And Jack's reaction to that is not necessarily what you expect. He he kind right. of puts forth the, you know, uh, you know well, that's terrible type of thing, but he's not – I don't think his reaction is what you would normally expect from such a gruesome story, especially for someone who is a father himself. Yeah, I mean, and he certainly, you know, is sitting there and, you know, his kind of, you know, in his typical, you know, Jack Nicholson eyebrows go up a little bit, you know, not really showing, you know, if anyone, any normal person sitting in that setting hears 
oh, you know, they were butchered. Uh, the family was, he butchered them and then put a shotgun in his mouth and blew his brains out. Um, any person would say, oh, God, there would be some, elicit some sort of deeper reaction. There would probably be some, be uncomfortable, you know, asking, you know, kind of inquisitive questions. Yeah, like, where, where in the hotel? Where you know, did this where happen? Yeah, where in the hotel, yeah. you know, but his line of inquiry, he was just very happy to be, well, and they, and when he notes uh, the period of time that he'll be over overseeing the hotel over the winter, he all he just keeps reverting to is how happy he is to be in the isolation period because he's a writer. You know, that whole, yeah. so he's kind of completely deflecting from, you know, the, the discussion point of a, a gruesome, you know, massacre to him kind of focusing on himself and what he's going to be doing and how it's going to benefit him. So that an, another key point setting that there's a little bit of um, this, this move to, to the Overlook Hotel for over the winters about him and not really about the family's involvement. So that, right. Yeah, that's point. a good, that's a great point. Um, so it then cuts to back to uh, Jack's wife, Wendy and son Danny, and um, we see we see that Danny has at, at first we, it looks like an oh, imaginary friend that he kind of like wiggles his finger as he talks with him and ha- changes his voice for his uh, imaginary friend Tony. But pretty quickly we figure out that Tony is not just an imaginary friend as he's he's showing Danny things mm-hmm. in the um, you know and, and telling him about the hotel and tells him that Jack got the job and is about to, to call and right. let Wendy know. And so so we, we get that kind of pretty early that, okay, there's something, this isn't just a kid with an imaginary friend. Yeah, I mean, in that scene, you know, and I look back to my childhood, and I think I kind of had an imaginary friend um, whose name was Oscalita uh, around from that time. And Oscalita wasn't a finger character. He was a actually a little um, plastic army figure that I – refer to but i don't ever remember having conversations it, that would that would that's definitely something special and unique if you have an imaginary friend and they actually tell you things and what <laughs> right. happened me right. i had a name to my imaginary friend but he actually didn't ever communicate to me so that's a that's a good thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember having an imaginary friend maybe multiple ones but i never i didn't uh ascribe them to any character or anything like that. And I never, I don't remember ever having any out loud conversations. I think I probably more had conversations in my head and it might even be that as you're a kid, you almost don't even understand your own thoughts and feel like you're talking to somebody else. So, but I definitely, definitely had that same thing as well. uh, (laughs) Did not see any visions. Um, So Danny has some sort of episode where he um, uh, falls on, he's unconscious or faints or something. and, And we see this doctor, checking him out and then she has a bit of an uncomfortable conversation with Wendy and you get early on something else too from like the uh, the actual making of this movie is that um Shelley Duvall who played Wendy who I think is fant- I think she's fantastic in this movie yeah. she famously went through hell Kubrick really tormented her through the making of this under the you know quote unquote you know, I don't, I don't even know what you want to call it. Under the, the, the excuse of trying to pull this performance out of her, but mm-hmm. she was mentally messed up after this for a long time, and um, so that her performance is 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 outstanding in this movie. But at the same time, knowing what she went to to get through that is, right. it does make it harder to watch her scenes because you know 
that these performances are being pushed by outside forces in the real world. And that's, that's, that's a bit disturbing, but it, you know, her, her performance I think is quite good though. Very good. And I don't, I don't know what other considerations were given, but for, for the role, but she pulls it off. Um, I mean, one word that the only word that keeps coming to mind, and this is keeps coming throughout the entire film is her character is very meek. Yes. Uh, and I think that's one of the one of the few words you can. She looks physically meek. She looks anemic. She's very white and pale, dark hair, very thin. Typical seventies and eight or seventies eighties mom, and you know just very with her responses. And I know we're going to talk about this in a second about uh, the the doctor's evaluation. Um, that her responses are very not quite scripted, but she's setting the tone for the narrative that kind of makes the viewer think a little more deeply that there's something more going on in this family than what we really, what is actually presented in the film uh, early on. Yeah. And she's clearly making excuses for Jack yes, as well. Very much so. Yeah. So that's, that's a good scene. Very well. Um, and uh, it really sets the stage for her. And I think, I think Meek is, that's perfect. That is, that's the perfect word to describe her. Yeah. So then we move to the hotel and Jack and the family moving in and getting the tour and you get this introduction to um, Dick O'Halloran played by Scatman Crothers um, who comes across as very warm and friendly and then you get this phenomenal scene of him with Danny talking about the hotel where it goes from oh they're being friendly and can i get him some ice cream and then suddenly you're on these very tight shots of their of their faces and upper bodies i noticed a consistency thing too that's unlike kubrick to allow but i I think maybe working with a young child actor it's a little difficult multiple times during it when it cuts back to danny his hands are folded either in front of the ice cream cup or behind it like it alternates but um that's something i'd never noticed before but um so you you get these these good tight shots of of their faces and their reactions to one another and dick is talking about the hotel and talking to danny about the shining which is what his grandmother called it and his ability to do that and he you know he tells him that the things here can't hurt him but he needs to stay out of room 237 this this to me is just a Scatman Crothers doesn't have a huge role in this. He he comes back later, but but this is his big scene, and I think he crushes it. I think I think this scene is really really good. Yeah, and well, and and you know, just preceding their you know sitting down and discussion of The Shining, when the actual you get a sense of <clears throat> his his abilities when he's he's actually talking to Wendy, you know, about the food sources and everything, and and you hear you know. Um, uh, Dick's voice projecting and having conversation, and then he kind of turns and looks at Danny. And when he, like you said, he asks him the ice cream question. So it's a mental conversation, yeah. telepathic conversation, and it's eerie. And you know, right that that right then and there, there's super slightly supernatural elements that will be coming or involved at least in the storyline forthcoming. And uh, yeah, and he, like you said, his his role was very very small in kind of two segments in the film. But he carries a lot of weight and uh, a very congenial character, very friendly, warm and loving character who quickly identifies another person who has the same ability, The Shining. Yeah, yeah. So they have that great scene and, um, you know, he warns Danny to stay out of room 237. Um, so uh, then it kind of moves to – I want to talk about the um, 
it'll it'll come into play as the movie comes along. But the 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 quick um, title card shots that come up that say like you know one month later. Yeah. But the, the interesting thing is, and I, this is again the first time noticing it through the many times I've seen this movie is every time it does a new title card, it gets more and more vague. It goes from one month later, then it goes to like you know Tuesday, then it yes. goes to like. 10 a.m. It like, right. and that kind of, I, I think that's deliberate on Kubrick's part to make you kind of lose track of the time there. Right. Um, on the in seclusion, totally. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. So it moves to, you know, they've been there a month, they're kind of settling in. And then you've got these amazing tracking shots behind Danny riding the big wheel throughout yeah. the, um, throughout the hotel and and it's another one of those where the the sound is important too it's like the wheels are making this really loud clacking noise on the wooden floor then it's quiet as it goes over the rug and then back to the it's just a very i i think kubrick does a nice job with sort of mesmerizing and hypnotizing you with certain things i think eyes wide shut is another movie that where you can really feel that and i think this these sequences in in this movie really show that there's a it, there's there's just sort of this strange hypnotic nature to following the big wheel, and I don't know how they did those shots because it's not on a clearly right. not on a dolly track because Danny's right. riding in front, so it's it's a it's fantastic um, cinematography. I want to tie into that because um, the viewers right now or the listeners rather can't see what's behind you, but they, it's the hallway <laughs> to two three seven. So, and I'm also just and I noticed this in the film that the the carpeting is very psychedelic trippy. So I mean yes. they. He, mixed in really you know great long form wide angle shots of you know kind of chasing Danny down the hallways but also he's going over very i mean the scene the the setting and the scenes of each of, of this film as we learn and we've learned more over time everything uh, there's a lot of deliberate stuff in this film but the but the carpeting like the, which I see right over your shoulder is very trippy so when you're seeing Danny go down the hallways on his big wheel you're just, you know, you're, you've got the music, you've got the, the rhythm patterns of him traveling at a, at a good clip, and then you've got the the the, the carpeting and, and the walls, and it's just very these crazy, ass, and, and I think this is carried out in a lot of other films too, just these wild long-form shots, these ominous shots of these long, and, and, and again, usually people love going into hotels. Kubrick really does a fantastic job of creating eeriness in these hallways, emptiness, eeriness, um, and Isolation. Yeah, isolation, total isolation. Yeah, and I think it also like f- these tracking shots following Danny riding around. You almost you you get a, it ties into the hedge maze. It the the hotel yeah, itself feels like very a maze. much so. Yep. Yeah. yeah, so great uh, great shots there, and then um, you get another great shot that I don't know how he did this one either. This would be done with computer graphics today, but the shot of the maze, like Jack yeah. is looking over the miniature. Yep. A version of the maze, which is in like the lobby of the hotel. Meanwhile, Wendy and Danny are out in the actual maze, right. and it's shown above, and you can see them walking yes. in it. It's a it's a really neat shot. I'm thinking helicopters. Yeah, I, yes, no or, sound, but but I'm but, yeah, like to get the shot of them, and then yeah. it's superimposed. But then, but then really the, clean. But it was super clean, and then the zoom in because you go, yeah. the camera goes right down, and the next thing you know, you're walking with them, and and how Wendy keeps saying, oh, how beautiful the maze is. And, you know, her positivity throughout the film is is well recognized up until the uh, a few points as we start to see uh, events turning uh, ominous. Yeah. So, uh, again, we get more another title card. It, 
you know, it, um, it advances the story again. And then we get the first time, actually, I'm sorry, not the first time, but the, we had seen the twin girls, the Grady twins before when, right. when Danny was in the arcade, right. when you see them in there, they're a little unsettling, but you don't necessarily think anything, you know, uh, is is necessarily out of place with them. It's just, and, and they're not presented as ghosts or anything in that right. in the arcade. They're just two girls, and they turn around and walk away. Um, this time, you, you're following Danny down the hallways again, and suddenly he turns the corner, and there they are. Right. And that that scene, that shot of those two girls mm-hmm. is, to me, one of the scariest things in movies ever. It's just not from a jump scare perspective. It's not gory right. or anything like that, although it does because he does right. see the vision the of, them, of, of yeah. them having been killed. But it's just incredibly unsettling. And it, it was at that point or was it in the arcade when they say, come and play with us, Danny, forever? It's at that point. Okay. All right. Yeah. So because that, that in itself – you, the, the, the way they say it, you know, they say they're singing in tandem. Come with us, Danny. Come and play with us forever and ever and ever. And that will come back into play a little bit later in the film. That phrase. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would agree with you completely. That's one of the more unsettling, and it's the most memorable. I mean, you know, everyone oh, yeah. talks about. It. You can say, oh, remember that scene from The Shining? Oh, you mean the two little girls? People will know exactly. That's yeah. how iconic that scene was. I mean, that doesn't and parodied. Happen. Yes, it, it total lots things. of parodies over time. Yeah, so um, sorry, getting a drink of my my Hawaiian punch. Uh, yeah, so incredibly effective, and it's that first hint too, you know, the come play with us forever and ever that they are trapped here. There's some yes. sort of almost pause of time within mm-hmm. this hotel, um, and that'll come up later. Um, and um, I think we should probably talk about Danny uh, Danny Lloyd, the the child actor. Um, a lot of times child actors, you get an uneven performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's quite good through the whole thing. And he has some, he has some weighty scenes that he needs to, to carry out here. I think he does a great job. Yeah. And I, I did the, a little research into him and he hasn't had a very storied film career. This is probably his most notable film and Kubrick did or had some of his casting directors do a, major semi-majors like three or four cities in the country chicago and elsewhere a search basically to try to identify the best boy character and and i didn't realize this until very recently trying to get a talented young boy whose whose um accent fell between both um his mom and his dad so when when he and jack so i mean i think they right because i think they stayed there from vermont yes so sort of um, a neutral accent. Yeah, kind of a neutral, kind of flat accent. Yeah. And yeah, like there's so many taut scenes that he's, you know, either with his mom, you know, having his meltdowns or his kind of partial breakdown to some scenes where he's just on screen by himself. Um, and it's unnerving, especially for a little kid to do pull off some of these scenes, and especially in a horror film these days where he's actually – doing the acting it's not him in a closed environment so it's right. it's it's wild that he that they found the right guy and you know the right kid rather out of 5000 actors at least a minimum 5000 actors uh, pool was was quite impressive yeah and uh there's uh, one of my favorite podcasts uh is called film sack uh where they uh break down various movies and one of the hosts on there brian ibbett was actually one of the finalists to play Danny, really? he's actually told that story before. Yeah, it's kind of, and I think he was in like the final five or something. Wow. Too. So that's that kind of cool. Yeah. 
Um, so then we go to this um, this scene in the bedroom where Danny has gone up to get his fire truck. He's mm-hmm. he's promised his mom he's going to be quiet so he won't wake up uh, Jack. And he goes in and Jack is just sitting there on mm-hmm. the bed. And you get this very tense scene <clears throat> where Jack is clearly out of sorts and, and Danny comes right out and asks him. He's like, you wouldn't hurt mommy and I, would you? And right. so – I, I figured out something too that again, when we watch these to to do the reviews for the podcast, I tend I take notes and I kind of try and watch a little bit differently. And yeah. again, I caught something I had never caught before. This scene with Danny sitting on Jack's lap and them having this conversation is one long take. Uh, there are no cuts, uh-huh. and I think that really adds to the tension of the scene because there's no breaking away you're just focused on these two having this very quiet intimate conversation with which has some some tension in it yeah i mean you can you can definitely see when he when danny enters the room um and the way he says dad it's almost kind of dad it's like very again a child who has some fear of his father and when he sits on his dad's lap and he begins to converse um, with him, you can definitely see the, you know, the, the, the Danny's demeanor sitting on his dad's knee is a little unnerving. And yeah, when, when he enters the room, you know, Jack is sitting there kind of a blank stare looking out the window. And that is one of several early on shots of Jack just kind of, you can tell his descent is occurring because they, the, the, the way they filmed him in, in certain rooms you know in in the hotel are quite dramatic it's just basically headshots of him just kind of looking pale haggard kind of his stubble beard growing in like he's beginning to let himself go and that kind of yes step forward to the room scene with danny and you know ma you wouldn't hurt mom and i would you and then and then his kind of reaction was kind of what we expected you know, in a, in a way, like, I would never hurt you. I love you. And it, But the way Jack says it, you know, Jack Nicholson's character through Jack Torrance, it's almost not believable because it's very difficult to – because you kind of get a sense of what's coming, you know, it kind of foreshadowing a little bit of what, what's around the corner. Literally. And he also, he also blames Wendy too. He's like, did yes, your mom – Yes, he's you like, know? Did, you, did you – I think what's something to the effect, did your mom say something like that? So he right. immediately – that familial tension, the, the, there's a definitely a familial di- di- disconnect, and I, I kind of tie that conversation with Danny kind of into the conversation they had in the car about cannibalism on their way up to the manor when they were first moving into the hotel. You know, they, they talked about uh, apparently of homesteading settlers that had to resort to cannibalism, and just Jack's reaction to that was very – yeah, Danny uh, says he learned about it on TV. He learned about it on TV, and he's like, that's where he learns things, on TV. And his, just his, the way <clears throat> Jack's, Nicholson's character responds to that, that that part of the conversation was a little bit unsettling. Like, there's there are three separate entities in that family. There's the husband, the wife, and the child, and they're not really as connected as a familiar unit should be. That's right. Where, and so I, I kind of, in one way, you know, like what you were saying in, in the beginning, you know, King wasn't happy with the, the kind of the showing of the full focus of the family. But I think there were some shots in the film that kind of alluded to trying to capturing the faltering dynamic of the American family in that regard. Um, and one of which was in, was in the, that early car scene. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, so then we get the bar scene where now we finally see that the hotel has done something within Jack to, 
um, to cause him to see things. And, and he walks into the bar and suddenly it is a fully stocked bar and we see the bartender Lloyd um, played. Here's our other Blade Runner connection. It's Joe yeah. Turkle who plays Tyrell in Blade yes. Runner. Um, <laughs> and it's a it's a it's a really good scene. And something that I really took from watching this is that. Um, so so we know Heath Ledger played the Joker in The Dark Knight. Right. And did his own thing. You know, people wondered going into it, is he going to pull from Nicholson, blah, blah, blah. He, he did not. However, I think Ledger took Nicholson's mannerisms and speech from this scene and used those in Dark Knight. If you watch those, if you watch Nicholson in this scene and then you watch how Ledger does some of his deliveries in Dark Knight, I think he pulled from this. There's there's manic little things where he's right. where he and it's very similar to what Ledger does in in Dark Knight. Right. Um, so I found that really interesting to to kind of watch it and and look at it from that perspective. But um, but this scene's interesting because you get because uh, Lloyd, you know Joe Turkle's character, doesn't have a lot to say, but he's very subtly and right. you know he's he's just kind of pointing Jack in the in the direction of Falling right. further into madness, really. Right, right, and yeah, you know, the and this is the the one of the first scenes where we learn earlier um, from the doctor interview um, when Danny had his first episode that you know Jack had been sober and and there was a, a dramatic pause there because you're thinking oh a couple of years it's only been five months since Jack had a drink right and now Jack is already hitting the bottle quite quite heavily and that that descent into into madness which seems to be going at a, a more quickened pace now now he's talking to a bartender who actually we learn is a ghost spirit an entity that still resides in there uh is now feeding him alcohol so he's getting the, the worst case scenario he's getting the drugs he's getting the mental breakdown and he's having you know diverse conversations about where he's what he's supposed to be doing uh inside the hotel Right. And and like his responsibilities as a father and there's all, all these different things that play into it. Right. And and the you wonder, too, about the intoxication aspect of it is the hotel doing something to him because they Allman says early on they take all the booze yeah. out of the for, for insurance purposes. So right. but the hotel is still clearly affecting his mind. Right. Um, so uh, and now you get a cut to Dick uh, Dick O'Halloran's. Um, we assume his home in Florida, uh, and him sensing that something is off. Now there, there's something interesting. So in Dick, they chose him like I think he's sitting in his sitting in bed and, and mm-hmm. watching TV, and we see not only above the TV but behind him are these massive. I can't tell if they're paintings or pictures um, right. <laughs> of of uh, topless black women. Right. And um, it just it it made me wonder. I don't think Kubrick ever does anything. You know, just on a whim, or it's like, oh yeah, just decorate this in a certain way. Right. There's a reason that these paintings or, or pictures are here, and I don't know if it's trying to paint O'Halloran in a certain light or what it is, because it's not. It's interesting because the the, the paintings themselves are interesting. They're not pornographic. They're they're even though the women are topless. Yeah, they're 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 portrayed as art. You've got these beautiful women with, and like I think one of them has a, just a huge afro, and she's got. Yeah. I think you know. I think maybe it's um, evoking uh, African themes too. I think there's like a necklace and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's um, 
it's on purpose. And I, it, it made me wonder what his thinking was right. for, for having these, these here. So that it just, and I don't know, like some things I can say, Oh, I, I think maybe it means this or whatever. These, right. I don't know, but I guarantee he, that was a, a conscious choice by Kubrick. Like yeah. Yeah. I thought the same thing. I, I actually, that was probably one of the first times I noticed that. And it's not like a small photo. It's like a no, they're massive paintings. Yeah, huge. Yeah. yeah, and and I don't think I think they're photographs, but um um, but it's just um, and again, they're not they're not done in a way where you would say, oh, that's just lewd, and right. they're they're tasteful and they're right. definitely presented as art, which mm-hmm. is which is interesting. So I, I did it did make me wonder about that. I might have to. I'm sure on the internet somebody has a theory. Someone's got a, a good theory <laughs> for some direction on that. Totally. <laughs> yeah, but Dick gets the sense that something is wrong um, and makes a call up to the uh, to the forest ranger station who Wendy has been in contact with um, to see if, you know, he can see if things are OK up there. Um, now, after that, we get our first look inside room 237. Um, uh, well, actually, Danny, Danny goes in and right. we don't see what happens, <clears throat> excuse me, to him, but he does go in and then something happens and meanwhile you know jack has had this terrible nightmare and wendy's consoling him and danny comes down and he's clearly been roughed up in there so so we get to see jack go into 237 and and kubrick does something this is the only point in the film where he does this he does first person the camera is like jack entering the room you even see the hand come out and push the door open and it's done very slowly and I think it's I think it's incredibly effective and very disconcerting the way that it is. And, and the color scheme that he chose for that bathroom was oh, well. Oh yeah, the green and the yeah. lime green. It's it's unsettling, unnerving, kind of again weirdly very seventies. Very 70s. Like it, you know that the and and the, and I found it interesting in in the beginning when they mentioned, you know, when Jack it was probably one of the few questions that Jack posed. That was legitimately why he was kind of interested in taking the, the the caretaker job. You know, he was curious why the hotel shuts down during the wintertime, being that it's so close in where they are in Colorado, um, somewhere I, I think outside of Denver or Boulder. He they basically tell him because the the what an amount immense amount of snow and it would be not cost effective to plow it. So you get a sense that you know uh, even more so. During like we we've talked about and mentioned a few times uh, so far, it's a very isolated place that becomes even more isolated during the winter time. But most ski resorts, and that I, that I kind of question a little bit because most ski resorts are uh, or resorts in general in the mountains are dependent on winter holiday traffic or winter visitors or, or winter travelers. So to and then I started to go dig a little deeper in my typical Scorpio stuff. Like why would they not? invest in a good plowing system but again based on the roadway that we saw to get to the overlook hotel it's a dangerous ride and you could see yeah. why they would shut it down for the winter yeah for sure so uh so we get jack's visit to room 237 where he sees this uh beautiful woman in the tub who gets out and um uh begins to kiss him and then we get the the shot in the mirror Right. Where it's revealed that this is actually a, an older woman who has been dead in the tub for some time. Right. And um, that's one there, – there's for a horror movie, there's not a ton of actual 
horror. There's there's a lot of suspense and you building things up in your mind. But for actual shots of of like gore and and gruesome things, there's not a ton in this movie. But this is one that's very it's done very effectively because you see the decomposition and and it's just it's very um, it's very effective. Her body was very soupy. In that, in that. <laughs> yes, yes. Because yeah, you know, uh, like you're putting up really politely decomposition, but yeah, there was <laughs> there was some definitely large missing segments of yeah. flesh on her back, and she had some sort of weird kind of polyps from being in that water for so long. Yeah. It's it's gross. It's it, it's you know <laughs> yeah. you go, like you said, you go from this attractive woman who you know is on the scale of uh, a Bo Derek at the time, him making out with her, to suddenly now he's embracing and kissing this horrific ghoulish corpse and it's and it's very unsettling and yeah yeah, he even shows a little bit of unsettling because as he's backing out of the room it's one of those almost classic another classic shot of him kind of like what is happening in 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 the camera following him backwards but you see his face and him kind of like almost falling out of 237 you know back into the hallway and closing the door and having just you know a, a really horrific experience and like what is happening here? Yeah, yeah. Something too that I noticed uh, is that the the woman that gets out of the tub, the the younger woman, yeah, resembled I thought uh, Lily Sobieski, who sure. who Kubrick used in um, uh, Eyes Wide Shut, and it made me wow. wonder. Oh, did he did he pick her? For... Was there some characteristic, whether on purpose or subconsciously? Right. But that uh, yeah, I thought that when she got up out of the tub, I was like, oh, that's funny because she's in. <laughs> Eyes wide shut. Right. Um, so then we get um, Jack going back into the ballroom and the bar, and now things have advanced to the point where he's not just seeing Lloyd. He's seeing an entire ballroom full of people, and he runs into Grady uh, and spills some uh, cocktails, and they go into the, the bathroom, and they have their discussion. And this is an interesting scene, too. And again, Kubrick's so good – with where he stages these scenes, this bathroom is brightly lit. There's a mm-hmm. lot of bright colors in here. Every the light is very intense and focused on them. And uh, you get this conversation where where Grady um, suddenly goes from being like, oh, you know, mild mannered servant right. to very pointed questions to Jack about how he's handling his family. Right. Very dark. Yes, very dark. And it's a long scene. And Kubrick doesn't – he doesn't shy away from cutting things short. He lets these things draw out. Right. And instead of becoming too much where you're like, oh, that's you know, – get on with it, the right. longer it draws out, the more disturbing it becomes. And to that point, very long scene. But if you analyze the dialogue between the two of them, it's very short dialogue back and forth between each of them it's not long form long discussions it's like very short sentence structures very dark content yeah and which kind of runs into contrast with a very long scene because that that scene goes on for i don't know like four or five minutes at least and but the dialogue and the breakdown as like you mentioned uh, as to what jack torrance is not doing correctly and i believe this is where he mentions about correcting family problem yes the words correct which is more frightening using that term because that's almost like a a uh a an abusive relationship yeah i corrected the situation it's not saying i punched her or i attacked her i corrected it which is even more darker and sinister yeah that's that's a great point 
a good job with using the right um the tone of the dialogue but also the right words and i think that their dialogue is really sets the pace for what is going to going to be one hell of a finale yeah yeah and you also get some other subtle things too is that grady uses a racial slur to describe o'halloran and and jack repeats it he doesn't he's not put off by it but he so you get a little bit more further into his his character too that this isn't something that he finds um repulsive or, or, offensive. You know, or offensive at all he he just repeats it so right. he almost agrees yeah. and so and without yeah you get another little subtle look at, yeah. at into him yeah anyway. uh yeah it's a great scene it's 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 played very well and then it's pretty much that's like the full break for jack at that point you get the famous scene on the stairs yes. where wendy has the bat and yep. he's um he's just completely devolved and she's breaking down because right. it's clear that he's gone nuts um a, a very Again, just the, the the scene structure, even though this is the movies, I think almost two and a half hours long. And we were talking about the long scenes, you right. know, like the like the bedroom scene, like the bathroom scene we just talked about. But none of it seems extraneous. Like there's oh, yeah, it feels like every second serves a purpose. And you and, and it this the scene on the stairs, I think, is um is one of the more memorable ones in the movie. One of the more disturbing ones, and I and I frequently reference uh, the what you know what Jack says to Wendy, <laughs> not the violent part, but give me the goddamn or give me the fucking bat. <laughs> right. And, and 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 again, this is where you really see a kind of change in her, going from a meek character to a meek character on on the survival defense mode yep. because, and protective of and Danny. protective, yeah, because she knows Danny. She's not quite certain what happened in Annie, but she knows that, you know, she felt he was involved with the, the, the kind of the strangulation or the, the throat marks on Danny's neck. Right. But the way she still holds the bat is just not – it's not it's un- confident. It's, it's not confident, and, and that's a really good way of putting her further into character as, as, as that scene progresses going up the stairs. So she's walking up the stairs, swinging a bat, holding the bat almost like a third of the way up the yeah, bat, yeah, yeah. and and his – you know, and his, you know, and what he says to her is just, you know, I think it was, I'm going to bash your fucking brains in. Yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, he, he, it's, there's meek her, and then there's almost ready to be absolute ultra-violent him. And, and she's, you know, trying to keep him uh, literally at bay by swinging the bat back and forth. And, you know, and she finally connects with him and, and knocks him down the stairs. And in that you know, what could have been a very different ending to a scene had she not been able to uh, hit him with a bat. Right, right. And she uh, she drags him to the um, – to now, now and think about it. Before, I was like, did she put him in the cooler? Um, because he would – he would. I mean, it's a freezer. He would – he would. but it's not – I think it's – I think it's presented as the dry goods area the because he yeah. – you see that he's, like, opened up some Oreos and other stuff yep. when it shows him again later. So right. she puts him in there, um, and then – Later, we hear him talk to Grady through the door, right. and something something interesting that I noticed um, this time around is that we don't see Grady. We don't see Grady let him out. We, right. we hear him talk to Grady, right. but we don't ever see how he gets out. So what, what are your thoughts on that? That's a really good point, and, and on all the years I've been watching this film, I think that's – that that's a tough one because he does have a when Jack is in the bathroom he obviously has a physical contact with the yes. 
woman being. So there's there's a spirit entity there that he physically contacts. And Grady too, because they collide. And, too. and as yeah. well as and, and and Lloyd the um the bartender. But now he's I don't have an answer to this because I've always been fascinated. How the fuck does he get out of yeah. that? Because it's locked. Yeah. And when it finally opens, it's a very easy open. And it, I, it's it's one of those. It isn't still a mystery. I mean, clearly, the the spirits uh, and the energy, the negative, the evil energy that roams this hotel, is enough to physically manifest itself in human or you know or spirit human form, but also is enough to actually make objects move. And right. in this case, was the unlocking of that door because it unlocks very easily. And Jack is now let out. Right, and before that, we have no no proof really that right. things and, and people that Jack are interacting with are there or they in his brain. In his but mind. now we have proof that right. something has physically manipulated, you know, yes. something within the, you know, by by releasing that pin mechanism to open that door. Yes. So um, so yeah, that was something I hadn't noticed before, but but made me think of that. Um. Then we we go to the famous door chopping scene and the, yes. uh, the here's Johnny line, which apparently Nicholson <laughs> improvised. Um, and uh, I, I saw somewhere on I can't remember where it was. It was a documentary or something about how in the rest of the world, you know, seeing that that um, scene, they would sometimes change the here's Johnny line because it was obviously referencing Carson, which maybe sure. outside of the U.S. people aren't right. yet. So right. I thought that was kind of neat. Um, Another iconic line. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and and his face pressing through the um, right. you know the the cracks in the door. Um, sure. Yeah. And and Wendy's able to get Danny out through the small window in the bathroom. There's actually a big like um, snow drift of snow up against the side of the hotel. He slides right, right down. It's interesting too because um, and again it's a kid sliding, but at the same time when you're making a movie that would come under the purview of quote-unquote stunts but i think yeah. it's pretty clearly danny lloyd that makes that slide I down think there so yeah i mean yeah. he she when 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 he's able to get him through the window you know and that's not just a, a small little you know he's like like two or three yeah, stories they're, up. yeah they're at least on the second floor it's maybe like a, it's floor. Like, yeah it's like a hell of a snow drift but it's, <laughs> yeah it's kind of neat it, it adds a little bit of what children love in the wintertime to a very <laughs> scary situation that's unfolding where we don't know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah. So uh, Wendy is unable to get out. Uh, she can't fit. She can't get the window. It's frozen. She can't get it all the way through to for her to fit through. So she has to wait. And, you know, he chops through and she when he's trying to reach in and, and unlock, she chops his hand with the big butcher knife that she's got. So she gets a little bit of a respite. <clears throat> but um, now Jack. Uh, sorry. Um. Uh, Dick O'Halloran has arrived. He's made his way. We've seen him fly, you know, right. fly up. He's he's uh, borrowed a snowcat from a, a buddy of his, and uh, and has made his way up there and comes into the hotel and and starts calling for people. Right. So this was a departure from the book. In the book, Dick lives. Um, and actually, the final scene in the book is Dick and Danny and they're fishing, um, and he's kind of sort of taken on a surrogate father role with Danny. I this makes me wonder, because to me. Dick's death is so unnecessary and so oh, un unneeded. Right. To me, this almost screams of like a studio executive saying, We're, we've got a horror movie and nobody dies in this movie. Right. Give us like one death and right. this is right. sort of the way to do it. But even that feels unnecessary. Right. Send a cop up there to investigate. 
Right. You know, have have somebody have, else have like a park ranger be the first person to get there, then Dick arrives. No, I, I that's a really good point. I mean, the only other really bloody murder stuff that we know that it's a horror film is when we see that momentary flashback when Danny's in the hallway of the two girls that are the girls, yeah. Yes. Um, we see elements of suspense and creepiness. Uh, the woman in the tub. We see um, when Wendy is running through the hotel, she, one of the ballrooms that she passes has the cadavers or the corpses in yes. cobwebs. So you're only getting very, very muted horror a- aspects. Yeah. But the I've blood from the that. elevator too. Yeah, the elevator and the blood scene, the recurring blood scene um, dream. But I, I, I totally agree with you on his death seems completely unnecessary, or at least it should have been more of a wounding um, and not a full-on axe to the middle of the chest. Right? It was actually right, right to his heart, basically. Oh yeah, yeah. It was a it, dead. It was a dead hit. Yeah, and um, it's shocking. It's shocking it's when it happens because Jack pops out and screams, and it, and it's very. And of course, you get the cut to Danny too reacting to right. it because he knows what's happened. Right. Because he's so. It yeah. So I mean, I I think you can make an argument for some of it, but but to me, it just for for Dick to go through so much to get up there to die mm-hmm. that way. It I don't know something about that right. felt off to me. Yeah, flying like you said, he flew from Florida, drove uh, from wherever it was, uh, whatever Boulder, airport, I think, from Denver yeah. or Denver, and then takes the you know the the piston bully Articat all the way up there, and then for him within four or five minutes of entering the hotel to get an accident in the middle of the chest, it seems you know unnecessary, and I would have you know I would have very much liked him to have had been more knocked out or chopped in the arm, and then have him help out and save them at the end, basically. Right. Not necessarily maybe have what we know happens to Jack, but have him survive, but, you know, but be not morally wounded like he was. It just agreed. It was just all that effort to end so quickly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I was going to say something else, but I can't remember what it was about. Um, yeah, I don't remember. Uh, we also get Wendy wandering through the hotel and seeing some strange things. She sees right. the dog man, you know, in the yeah. room <clears throat> with the other guy, uh, looked like they're performing some sort of sex act. Uh, right. the, the guy with his face all stitched up like one of the servants. Um, yes. Uh, so, so you see, you know, all this crazy stuff. So it's, right. it's manifested enough. It maybe it's drawn enough power from Jack's madness or whatever it is right. that it's affecting Wendy now who, right. You know, had now not seen things, you know, that are physically yeah. in front of her because her re- her reactions are, uh, you know, she right now she's a woman who's dealing with a you know homicidal husband, and now she's actually all these things have manifested. Like you said, it could be from either the the, the anger, death energy that he's projecting, or just her fear alone yes. um, yep. coming out and you know, these things being able to kind of being fully viewed by an actual human being. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there's Danny being chased through the maze, uh, and he um, retraces his footsteps uh, in the snow and is able to escape. And then you get this really s- startling and abrupt cut to the frozen Jack in the maze, which I, I, I don't know. I've, I, I go back and forth. I can't tell if I think it's if it's almost comical and maybe is a misstep by Kubrick or that it's just so stark and unexpected and quick right. that it's, that it's effective. I don't know. Where, where do you come down on that ending? I mean, the whole, I mean, the whole ending <laughs> starting with, you know, Dick Halloran's murder, you know, acts the chest to, you know, right up to the ending where you, know, you see frozen Jack. I mean, in his uh, ominous face, just sitting there, you know, obviously Jack had the huge cut, 
uh, on his hand from when, when he cut him through the door. He obviously has a broken ankle because he's limping throughout the whole entire thing. So he's clearly physically um, – um, from the fall, right? The fall the down fall the stairs has hurt him. When you knocked him downstairs, so he's on. You definitely see that he's he's. It, there's a lot of pain going on, the physical pain. So now you know when he ends up in the snow and freezes to death, and you see kind of like the icicles hanging off his eyebrows. It's a very, it's a kind of a quick death scene, and I, I don't know. I, I it fits for the tempo of the film, but I do feel um, that last. 10 minutes is very abrupt. Everything yeah. seems to happen in the last 10 minutes, which, which can be the case, but usually in the last third of a film, there's enough action or violence to kind of carry it out, like to kind of take you to the end of the film and be completely like, wow, what an amazing ending. That one was kind of a, I don't want to say anticlimactic, but it was, it's, it's kind it's of unexpected. Gruesome. It's unexpected. It's a gruesome ending um, for him, but you don't really get a sense of, you know, because you see him as he's, Danny, I'm coming for you. I'm right behind you. So, I mean, you, you definitely get that, you know, him dragging the axe like he's going to commit another murder. And he just never gets that opportunity because Danny outwits him, which is great. I mean, I thought that was a really unique little plot twist where he – and what what little boy knows how to lead, run around a maze, and be able to retrace the steps by re-stepping in them very – I mean, they do a really good job of him carefully stepping in yeah. to mislead Jack to go down one way and get further lost in the maze. And that maze is 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 no joke. I mean, like you said in the beginning, you, you definitely see the overview of uh, of the maze. It's very intense and – It's huge. It's huge. And I don't know how – there weren't really any markers on there other than the lights, which Jack turned on to guide him through the maze – yeah, but that was the only way he was going to catch him would be through the footsteps, and Danny clearly does a great job of outwitting him. But yeah, it's a, I would agree it's a, an abrupt ending, kind of unexpected. Um, apt, I think, is is a well way to put it. It's a, a fitting ending for, but but because anything more brutal, I think, would have not been quite acceptable. I think it was interesting that the environment that he was in, the outside, the yeah. snow, the isolation of what kind of drove him to madness basically did him in in the end yeah that's a great point yeah uh and then the closing shot is this great uh pull slow pull in to the wall of pictures inside the hotel and you get this great picture from the july 4th ball of 1921 uh in black and white everybody all dressed up and there's younger jack right front and center um showing that he's now been absorbed as both the future of the hotel and the past of the hotel right and you know and i think was it uh grady or is it lloyd one of them one of the spirit ghosts said to him you've always been the character and i think that kind of foreshadows if you're not you know that ties into the image now that now like you said he's now absorbed into the lineage the history of the violence that this hotel embodies during the off season, strangely enough. But yeah, that's, and they, and the, the camera angle, like the, 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 the long form shot going in, you see that it's him. And then it starts with, and it pans down and then you just see his face and that typical Jack Nicholson smile, which he does in every movie right. um, yeah. is just, you know, the, the, you know, the confident evil horror that he <laughs> embodies. <laughs> yeah. And that um, that picture, I, I love that whole image uh, so much so that I have friends that um, uh, are big horror movie fans, 
and when they moved into their new house, I wanted to give them a housewarming present. So I have a, another friend who's a graphic designer. I had her – I took a picture of my friends. It's a couple. Um, yeah. They were dressed up for a wedding. I took – I gave my, my art design friend that picture and said, Photoshop them in. Take Nicholson <laughs> out. Photoshop them in. And she did a phenomenal job. Oh, it looked nice. – and like complete with still the you know July 4th ball right there in front. Wow. So they're, they're front and center. That's and I, awesome. So I gave that to them for a house. Very cool. Yeah, so um, I think that's a very effective ending. Um, so uh, so something else I want to talk about too is I, I mentioned that I haven't read everything King's put out over the last 20 years, but one thing that I did read was Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel. And then of course now they've done a movie with Ewan right. McGregor. I have not seen the movie yet, but I would like to. Have you seen the movie? I haven't seen. I'm, I'm reading up on it. I kind of now. I was I was kind of apprehensive. I know. The sequel was written not all that long ago, correct? Was it? Yeah, last probably last ten years. Okay, so I mean, I was I'm always apprehensive when things are so far, when sequels are done so far into the in, yeah. from the original. Um, but having read up a little bit more on it, it seems got it's got some interesting plot twists and points, and everyone. The book's, I, the book's I, great. I really like the book. People that I know that have seen it have really enjoyed it, so I think it's probably going to be a good viewing. So. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely need to see it. Um, so uh, we also want to talk a little bit about um, the documentary Room 237. Uh, that's another thing, too. From the novel, Nicholson changed it to um, – in the novel, I believe it's to Room 217. Um, so <laughs> what the change is, well, I'm not exactly sure. It's funny you say that because when you were guiding me to – and I didn't realize this, this documentary existed until you told me about it. For some reason, in the back of my brain – and I think I mentioned this to you through text message – I was looking, um, scanning for it around, uh, typing in two seventeen, and I may have, I may have missed I, when I first told you, I may have said two seventeen, and it never came up. And then I was like, I was getting a little, did you know, disenchanted with like, I, you, you're highly recommending this because you know I enjoy a good conspiracy and and thoughts behind the scenes of what's really going on, and I couldn't find it. And then finally, you know, I did doing a little research, and then uh, it was room two three seven, and then I looked back. And I, you know, told you, oh, it would be great if I had paid attention to figure out what room it was because I would have found it much sooner, which yeah. is just ironic uh, that, it, in fact, um, it was a, you know, a really, really well put together documentary. And I'm glad you, you know, told me about it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I'm going to bring up – it's been a few years since I've seen it, and I know you saw it just recently. Yeah. So um, so I it's, it's interesting. It presents a whole bunch of different um, – theories about yeah. what Kubrick is doing here. Some of them I think are like really, really stretching. Yes. And, and there's one or two where it's like, well, all right, I see things. So, um, so no, can you tell of, me one thing? And I didn't really fully get this until I watched the documentary, but in the book, does it indicate that the Overlook Hotel is on a Indian burial site? It does it say that in the book. I, I, I didn't know that. Honestly, I, I honestly, yeah, I can't remember. Okay. I, I read The Shining – so when I started reading Stephen King, I was probably way younger than I should have been. I was probably middle school. Right. Um, <laughs> and The Shining because at that point, you know, you're talking um, late 80s, uh, yes. he didn't have – he had a, a decent body of work, but he didn't have a ton. Right. So I read all those early ones. The Shining was one that I read. And so it's been, you know, decades since wow, I've read sure. it, so I, I don't remember. But um, so – so that's one of the – so among the theories that are posited – so in this documentary, which, um, again, you can rent it on YouTube. I think that was where I suggested it's – it's a couple bucks. It's, if, you, yeah. if you enjoy The Shining, it's, I think it's worth um, 
watching because it ties in really well agreed yeah, yeah. It, it does a good job so so there's these different theories that different people have and it's told through um these people's theories and their on-screen interviews and things like that with some clips from the movie so one of them that you touched on is that um the film is kubrick's uh kind of subtle look at the cultural assimilation of native americans right. um you know there but this is one where I'm like, I don't see that many ties. Yes, they mention it's buried, it's the that it was built on a Native American burial ground, and they actually had to repel attacks from the natives. Um, and then there's a couple of Native American imagery, mo most yeah. obviously the Calumet baking powder, which right. is in the uh, in the pantry, and you can see over Dick's shoulder right. um, in that scene. Um, so there's a lot of picture, and then, and they showed. In the documentary, a lot of uh, the hotels, you know, even if you look at the carpeting there, and there's some of the wall hangings, there's some Native American styled designs. Yes. And, For sure. Again, and Wendy asks about that as they're right. getting the tour. Right. And I've, you know, and I've having recently been to Colorado and, and you learned a little bit about the um, the area of, in the Indian tribes that, you know, that did exist in this region. That's a unique approach. But, you know, I, I've, I found it difficult that that the that that would be the Indian spirits because and then that pulls us back to you know the, the, not to later on the poltergeist which the house was built on right. an area Indian thing so I, I don't know so much you know that I thought that was an interesting way of people connecting things but I don't really know I, there's really no really major points given to you know Jack looking over his shoulder and seeing a, 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 a tribal elder or something. In right, the hotel. Right. You don't really see Indian spirits or angry Indian spirits that have come back to possess the, the previous inhabitants. You just see a very isolated hotel that has a very dark history um, and nothing more. So I, I don't know necessarily about if that, there's real connections there between you know, you know, the, the treatment and the genocide of the um, Native peoples in America at this location. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so another one is that um, this one this one seems really far out there, but this one actually has a few more uh, I don't want to say concrete, but it has some more interesting um, pieces of evidence within the movie, and that is that um, this person theorizes that Kubrick. So first off, it starts with NASA faked the moon landing. Yeah, and, and there's and I've heard different things on that too. I've heard people say that. Oh no, we never landed on the moon. But I've also heard people say, "Oh, we landed on the moon, but the footage was destroyed, and in order to it, it didn't make it back through reentry. The film was destroyed right. or whatever. And in order to make it clear, you know, because we were in the space race with Russia at the time, that to make it clear that we had been there, they had to fake the footage. So I've heard both things. I don't, sure, yeah, I don't particularly believe either one, but um, but this theory is that Kubrick was the one who faked. The moon landing footage and he is essentially confessing in the shining in a subtle way um there are things like at one point uh danny is wearing a sweater with like an apollo 11 rocket on it um <laughs> yeah there's um changing the room to number room 237 is apparently the distance between the earth and the moon um so there, there's all these things, and apparently the carpet pattern looks like the the launch pad from the Apollo missions. Right. Um, right. Yeah. There's there's a ton of stuff in there. So that one, 
I, I think it's interesting, but again, that's another one that right. I'm like, well, you know, what are your thoughts on that one? I, I again, I think it's a, a, a stretch, but even at a stretch, the people who are trying to connect the points to are doing a really good job of putting right. those those facts together. I mean, I, these are things that, you know, again, being interested in, you know, the moon and so forth, I would not have, it was a, it was a 237 that's got to be right. Know, it's got to be 237,000 miles. I don't know. <laughs> right. we, sound, okay. we, sound, we sound really dumb right here. We sound really uh, stupid. Let, let yeah. me see. All right. Let me, let me. Yeah. How many miles. miles away is the Earth from the moon? 238,900 miles. Okay. So if that if the, the science has been updated to reflect that, then that, that – um, Kind of uh, rejects the 237. Right. Unless the Earth, yeah. unless the Earth or the or unless we've come gravitationally a uh, thousand miles closer. <laughs> right. Um, Even rounding, it goes to 239 rather. Than right. Okay. So yeah. All right. So that, okay, that right there, that basic science that we just did looking on the internet. <laughs> right. That's right. That's that's the segment thing. of the show we call Brad and Ian are terrible at science and <laughs> and distances and math. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, that wasn't. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a really that's a really deep, uh, long stretch to try to tie that in. Um, although it is intriguing, nonetheless. Well, that's a long ways away. <laughs> yeah, so, it doesn't seem that far. Being so that being that five thousand two hundred eighty feet is one mile. Can you imagine? Let's do let's do the math on that. That's a long distance in 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 miles. <laughs> that's beyond my abilities. Uh, so one of the other conspiracy theories and and something i should mention about this movie is that i recommend people watch this movie not necessarily because i believe any of this but because of what you said the way that it's presented by this these people is very like they they believe it and these things that these dots that they're connecting make sense to them so and that in itself makes for an interesting movie right Uh, so there's another one that says that the um the hedge maze it ties into this mythic story of the Minotaur, and mm. it ties to this. This is really a stretch. There's yeah. a, in the arcade when Danny's in there early on. There's a picture of a skier in the background that yeah. this person says looks like a Minotaur, <laughs> and I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm not really. I would never that. made that association in a million years. Yes, yeah. you know, yes. When the Minotaur was hunted down, ultimately there was a maze, mm-hmm. um, but no, I don't think that's 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 a deep reach. Yeah, they don't spend a ton of time on that one in the movie, if I remember right. No. Um, uh, there's another one about um, uh, Kubrick tying this movie in thematically with um, the Holocaust, um, yeah. which was again another one where I, I I didn't find a ton of you know compelling pieces of evidence for it, but oh. um, yeah. So I I mean it's. I, I think the documentary is well worth seeing, and it, it used to be on IFC. Um, yes. I don't know if they still have the rights to it, so maybe if you have IFC uh, on your cable right. or on demand or whatever streaming service, you might be able to watch it for free. But I, I think if you're a fan of the movie uh, The Shining, it's it's well worth your time to watch the documentary. Definitely. Absolutely agree. And I, I appreciate your recommending it because up until our discussion of when we were going to do this, that was one of the first other recommendations aside from the film to watch was to check out the documentary. And yeah. I was completely enthralled. I actually had to watch it a second time Oh, you did um, because I missed a few things and I wanted to, you know, there was some, you know, something going on outside the apartment that was distracting. So I couldn't focus specifically on what I was saying, but 
what was being said, but I but I wanted to go back into it and kind of watch it a little more in depth and make those try to try to see if I could make those connections because I like trying to make connections um, in real time in life. But I was very much not put off, but I found it very difficult to try to find some plausibility in in what they were trying to reach. Sure. Trying to go trying to go too deep on a film that had enough to had enough on, on its own yeah. on its own to try to find extraneous points on the human history historical line of trying to tie that in so yeah, yeah i would love to be i would love to be eventually proved wrong and have your you know have something come out and say yeah this was a direct and then from you know the director's daughter's mouth or something like that um that would be great to hear but you know probably not going to happen right right well all right i think we've come to the end here uh anything else you want to say on the on the shining or or it's no, legacy or man, anything like i'm just glad i don't have the shining even though i <laughs> Even though I do talk to myself quite a bit, uh, I, I'm glad that I don't have the ability to communicate telepathically and, <laughs> and uh, be able to experience events before they happen. <laughs> it's time for a bike ride, Brad. It's time for a bike ride, Brad. He lives inside my mouth. <laughs> but where does he go when he's not in your mouth? In my stomach. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's oh, a- one, well, one last point that I think would... would I immediately attributed to the uh, – and I'm, I'm surprised and I'm sorry we didn't talk about this sooner – about you know um, Tony, the imaginary friend. I assumed that the imaginary friend came about, but obviously this is kind of debunked, because of the child abuse because oftentimes children oh, yeah. create you know fantasy figures or imaginary friends to kind of help them cope with things. So I um, – that was another part of when – he had his initial breakdown. Danny had his initial breakdown and, and the psychiatrist or psychologist is discussing with him about the existence of, of Tony. I just automatically assumed now, now what I know of, you know, child abuse and what kids, you know, how they cope with these types of things that the imaginary friend was um, a result of what was going on in the household. You know, we, we know it, it was definitely one incident, but there may have been some other ones as well. I mean, sure. we hear about the, the physical dislocation of Danny's shoulder, but you know, who knows if there's verbal abuse and that it's never really discussed in the film or really you, you get any more credence to it. But that's why I, I made that connection that maybe that or if he had the gift to begin with now, it had more of a reason to kind of be a uh, a force reckoning in his life sure. to come out and pr- kind of protect him and give him warnings about ominous things, you know, that could be coming for him. Yeah, no, that's good. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, manifesting in a, yeah. in a more obvious way within Definitely. him as as his powers grow, but also as he's experiencing more um, right. traumatic events. Yeah, right. yeah, excellent point. Nice. All right. So uh, coming up next, we are heading into the um, the holiday season, and I think the plan for Brad and I over the next two months is to take a look at two things that are were very important and were definitely wish list type items uh, as the Christmas uh, time rolled around in the in the 80s for us as kids. I'll save what we're going to do in December until then, but I, I think I'll give you guys a sneak preview. We're going to take a look at the first wave of releases for the Nintendo Entertainment System in the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, Brad and I both big uh, Nintendo fans and played. I remember borrowing and swapping games with, with Brad. Yep. When we oh, were in, yeah. in, uh, in middle school and beyond. So, um, yeah, so for November, we're going to take a look at that first run of, of North American releases for Nintendo. So that'll be fun. Dude, Our- my face, my smile just widened even <laughs> further. 
because I, I'm in my, uh, as I mentioned earlier on in, at the beginning of the episode, you know, having dug through some of my photo albums, I did find a couple photos of me holding up some of the early Nintendo games, and I'm very excited to, um, maybe I'll, we can post those on the Facebook yeah, website, yeah, that's great. <laughs> please do, that'll be awesome. Um, okay, cool, yeah, so that's sneak preview, we'll be talking about Nintendo games um, next month. Uh, other than that, I think we're I think we're good to close up, and, uh, and hopefully everybody enjoys the um, the spooky season of, of October and Halloween, obviously Brad's birthday is coming up, so I, I really love this month, and I love watching scary movies, and it was fun to revisit this one and, and dig a little deeper, as we yeah. usually do with the movies, Definitely. so thank you, Brad. Of course, of course. All right, well, thank you, listeners, as always. For Brad Anderson, my name is Ian Clark. I'm signing off, and we hope that you will listen to our podcast forever and ever and ever. Listening to Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast with Ian Clark and Brad Anderson. We are a part of the Freebooters Network. Check out thefreebootersnetwork.com to listen to all the awesome podcasts on the network. We also invite you to check out our sponsor, Geek Nation Tours, at geeknationtours.com and interact with our Facebook page, ask questions, offer comments, and critiques. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.